Good morning and welcome to Jewish Face and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. For those of you who have been uh, following our shows, you'll know that uh, this year we've been offering some commentary on the weekly portion known in Hebrew as the parasha that is read in synagogues throughout the world. This week the parasha is uh, known as Vayetze, which is usually translated as along the way or on the journey. It begins in Genesis 28, verse 10, and continues through Genesis 32, verse 3. It is a parasha that is chock full of many interesting episodes and interesting opportunities for commentary. I'm going to share with you an overview of the parasha and then chat with you about a number of the highlights in this week's parasha. On his way is, in fact, the means and language by which the parasha opens. On his way to his uncle Laban, or in Hebrew, Lavan, Jacob dreams of a ladder that stretches up from heaven to earth. There are angels of God ascending and descending the ladder. God stands behind Jacob and says, I am God, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of your father, Isaac. I will give you and your seed the land where you are sleeping. And your seed will be as dust of the earth and spread in all directions. And through you, all the families on earth will be blessed. I am with you and will guard you and will not leave you until I have accomplished what I have promised. Jacob awoke from his sleep saying, truly, God is in this place. The Hebrew for place is makom, for which I'll have more to say about later. And I did not know it. This is a house of God. This is a gate of heaven. The next morning, Jacob anointed a memorial stone with oil and named the place Beit El, the house of God. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and will keep me on this path and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and I will return in peace to the house of my father, then God shall be God to me. And this memorial stone shall be the house of God, and all that God will give me I will tithe to God repeatedly. This is the first mention in the Hebrew text of the word tithing. Jacob continued his journey. He saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying there. There was a rock that was to be moved from the well in order to access the water. And Jacob said to the men gathered there, Do you know Lavan? Yes, they answered, he is well and his daughter, Rachel the shepherdess, will soon be coming with her sheep. Soon Rachel did come with her father's sheep. When Jacob saw Rachel, he caused the rock to roll from the mouth of the well in order to water the sheep. Jacob kissed Rachel, then wept. Thereupon Jacob told Rachel that he was her kinsman and she ran and told her father. Jacob ended up staying with Lavan for a month. 
Then Lavan said to Jacob, even if you are my kinsman, should you serve me without compensation? What shall your wages be? Now Lavan had two daughters. The older daughter was Leah and the younger daughter was Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel and said to Lavan, I will serve you seven years for the hand of your younger daughter, Rachel. Lavan agreed. So Jacob worked for Rachel seven years. But they were only a few days in his eyes because of his love for her. And Jacob said to Lavan, My seven years are complete. Give me my wife. Lavan threw a big feast. When it was evening, he took his oldest daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob for their wedding night. But when morning came and Jacob saw that it was Leah, he said, What have you done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Lavan responded, it is not our tradition to give the younger daughter before the elder complete the wedding week with Leah, and we shall give you Rachel for another seven years of work. Jacob served another seven years, and Lavan gave him Rachel, and Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and when God saw that Leah was the hated one, God opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, Reuven. For the translation would be, God has looked into my affliction, now my husband will love me. She conceived another son, Shimeon, saying, God has heard that I am the hated one and has given me another son. Then she had another son, Levi, saying, now my husband will attach myself himself to me, for I have borne him three sons. Next, she had Judah saying, now I will give thanks to God. Then Leah stopped conceiving children. When Rachel saw that she had not borne Jacob any children, she envied her sister. She said to him, give me children or else I will die. But Jacob was angry with Rachel saying, am I in God's place? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Jacob was given by Rachel, her maidservant, Bilhah. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son, and Rachel said, God has judged me and heard my weeping and given me a son, and she called him Dan. Then Bilhah bore Jacob another son, Naphtali, for I have fought a divine struggle with my sister and I have prevailed. When Leah saw that she was no longer bearing children, she gave her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob. And Jacob and Zilpah bore Jacob a son, saying, God has fortune to come upon you. And Zilpah then bore Jacob another son, Asher. For Leah said, I am happy in my progress, for women have praised my progress. Then Leah conceived a fifth son for Jacob. She called him Yisachar, saying, God has given me my wages because I gave my maidservant to my husband. Then Leah conceived a sixth son, Zebulon. For Leah said, God has given me a good portion. Now my husband will make his home with me, for I have borne him six sons. Leah also bore Jacob a daughter, Dinah. The Torah portion then goes on to tell us, Then God remembered Rachel, 
God opened her womb and she bore Jacob a son, saying, God has taken away my disgrace, and she named him Joseph, adding, May God give me another son. At this time, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and all their children had been living with Lavan, and he said, I want to go home. Lavan answered, I believe that God has blessed me for your sake. What shall I give you? They agreed upon an arrangement where Lavan's animals were divided. God tells Jacob in a dream that it's time for him to return to his homeland. While Lavan is away from the house, Rachel steals her father's idols and Jacob leaves without saying goodbye. When Lavan heard that Jacob had fled, he came after him. But God came to Lavan in a dream saying, do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. The next day, Lavan said to Jacob, what have you done? You have robbed my heart, taking my daughters like prisoners of war. Why do you flee in secret? I would have sent you away with joy and songs. It is in within my power to hurt you. But your, my God, your God has told me not to. I can see you wanted to go home, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answers, I felt secretly because I was afraid you might take your daughters from me by force. But with whomever you find your idol gods, he shall not remain alive. Now, Jacob did not know that it was Rachel who had taken the idols. Rachel had them underneath her cushion on the camel, so when Lavan searched, he could not find them. This made Jacob very angry. He said, what is my crime and my sin that you pursued me? For 20 years, I have worked for you, serving 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you changed my pay 10 times. Had it not been for my God, you would now have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my misery and proved it in your dream last night. Lavan answered, now all this is mine. Let us make a covenant between us. If you should cause my daughters to suffer, or if you take wives besides my daughters, God is our witness. And they took stones and raised it high as memorial stones, and then had a feast. The next day, the Torah portion tells us, Lavan rose early and blessed them and returned home. Jacob went upon his way, and the angels of God met him. Jacob then called this place Machanayim, a camp of God. Well, what a bunch of stories. What a collection of interesting tales. And there are so many uh, interesting episodes and concepts to discuss that it's hard to pick out just a few for our broadcast this morning, but I've done so. And the first one I want to speak with you about comes from Genesis 28, verse 11. It reads, Jacob came to the place, hamakom in Hebrew. And one should ask, what does the word place refer to in the verse? This is the spot, you will remember, where Jacob falls asleep, 
and sees a ladder with angels going up and down. This is the place where God continues the biblical covenant with Jacob, the covenant of his fathers, Abraham and Ica. Sounds like a pretty important place. And normally, when a location is important, whether in the Torah or in our own lives, we remember what it is called, or we give it a special name that honors our experience there. So the question that emerges is why then does the Torah, which does not shy away from naming specific locations, refer to this holy and important location merely as Hamakom, the unnamed place? Biblical commentaries offer many possible answers about this. Da'at Zikinim, an anthology of medieval commentators first published in the 18th century, says that the word place refers to a location that was known for being a prayer spot. The rabbis explain that one of God's names is Hamakom, so it is fitting to refer to this location as the place, because at it, Jacob encountered Hamakom, God. Sforno, a 15th and 16th century Italian commentator, tells us that the term refers to a traveler's lodge for those passing along the way. Jacob was a traveler, and so it made sense for him to stop there to rest. Now, the text, as you read, is vague about exactly where the lodge was in order to underscore that the location was not important, but rather Jacob's encounter with God there is what we should focus on. But lo and behold, Bihur Shur, a 12th century French commentator, offers an answer that looks beyond the location entirely. He suggests that the word hamakom refers not to a place, but to anything that occurs without having been planned ahead of time. In this interpretation, hamakom refers not to an actual location, but to an experience, the experience of happenstance. Jacob has no intention of stopping to rest at that spot. He was on his way, as the text tells us, Vayetze. He was on his way. He happened upon it. He spontaneously rested. Often the holiest and most meaningful moments are those that just happen. An unplanned moment of rest with our family, an unexpected leap, deep conversation with a friend or an overwhelming feeling of gratitude to God that we never could have forced. The experience or his encounters that we don't plan, but occur naturally and easily, often impact us forever. This French commentator, by emphasizing the importance of this kind of moment, seems to be suggesting that the Torah text is highlighting this universal experience and challenging us to cultivate sensitivity to the mundane, overlooked moments we stumble upon that actually may end up being the most powerful of our lives. Upon waking, Jacob exclaims, 
in Genesis 28.16, so this entire episode has taken only five verses, God was in this place and I did not know it. We could hypothesize that Jacob could have overlooked his experience. Maybe it was a nice dream of angels going up and down. But one of the main traits that makes Jacob a timeless role model for all is his ability to notice the things that most people would overlook. He sees God's hand in his life, even in the small mundane experiences, and he is grateful for them. Jacob's appreciation challenges us to ask ourselves if we would do the same. Do we stop and look for the meaning and ordinary conversations and day-to-day activities and moments of rest? Do we look for God's hand in our lives? Are we sensitive to the place, hamakom, the transformative experiences and relationships that we can stumble upon at any moment? Well, that's a lot of commentary and a lot to consider about one Hebrew word, hamakom, the place. But I want to speak to you about another dynamic that takes place in this week's Torah portion. If we were to search for a subtle underlying theme in this parasha and its interpretive trajectory, it might be found in the way that Jacob takes the ordinary stones he finds around him during his travels and uses them to create lasting meaning. Stones. Rocks. The parasha opens, as you've already heard, with Jacob fleeing his brother Esau after stealing his birthright and blessing. A Haran, a place where he might establish and live among his king's people, kinspeople is his destination. And on his journey, he chances upon three stones that will change his life. So let's look at these three stones as we try to better understand this week's parasha. Alone in the wilderness, in a place near the town of Luz, which will be renamed Bet-El. Jacob faces the onrushing night with action worthy of a well-prepared Boy Scout. In Genesis 28, 11, he says, taking one of the stones of the place, he made it his headrest as he lay down on that place. But just before the miraculous revelation of the angels on their ladder that will come to him in his sleep that evening, our rabbinic interpretive tradition adds another sort of miracle that reveals important information to our patriarch. In one of the oldest collections of Midrashim, Bereshit Rabbah, we find the following. Rabbi Judah said, he took 12 stones, saying, the Holy One, blessed be he, has decreed that 12 tribes should string forth. Now, neither Abraham nor Isaac has produced them. If these 12 stones cleave to one another, then I know that I will produce 12 tribes. When therefore the stones united, he knew that he was to produce 12 tribes. Obviously, as we expect from the Midrash, 
kind of an eisegesis, reading something into the text that's not there. Rabbi Nahama said, he took three stones, saying, The Holy One, blessed be he, united the divine name with Abraham and Isaac too. If these stones become joined, then I am assured that God's name will be united with me too. And they did join together. He knew that God would unite the divine name with him, and so we would have three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The rabbis, again in the same collection of Midrash, said, He took the smallest number that stones could mean, referring to the Hebrew plural of Ivanim. That is two, saying, from Abraham came Ishmael and the children of Keturah, from Isaac came forth Esau. If these two stones join together, then I will be assured that nothing worthless will come forth from me. I hope you understood that. The suggestion is that from Abraham came Ishmael and the children of Keturah, who's known as his second wife. They became the forerunners of um, the Arab people in Islam. From Isaac came Esau, who tradition, Jewish tradition understands to be the uh, genetic uh, forerunner of Rome, which is usually understood to be Christianity. Such rocky wordplay derives from a comparison of Genesis 28.11, where Jacob takes from the stones of the place before he goes to bed. And Genesis 28, 18, where after he awakened, the text tells us he took the stone. So here it's the comparison of the plural and the singular. They had put under his head and set it up as a monument. Such playful rabbinic interpretation resolves the inherent conflict between these two verses, the singular and the plural, and allows the rabbis to reinforce the import to God among the patriarchs, and the entirety of his progeny, the Jewish people. They even managed to slap, slip in a slap against other nations in the process, bolstering Jacob, whose offspring are all acceptable, while noting how other traditions may not be as notable. But they also note that this stone became the place where God's house, the temple, would eventually stand. Of course, that's another Midrash. So stone two. Remember I said there were three stones. In the next chapter, Genesis 29, we read the story of Jacob meeting the great love of his life, Rachel. Continuing on his journey to Haran, he comes upon a well in a field where three flocks of sheep and their shepherds gather. It is covered with a heavy rock allowing access to water only when enough shepherds have gathered their collective strength to roll it away. Along comes Rachel, and Jacob is inspired to roll the rock off by himself, opening the spring to the gathered community. The Midrash explains Rabbi Yochanan interpreted it with reference to Sinai. He looked and lo, a well in the field. This symbolizes Sinai with three flocks of sheep. This symbolizes the priests, Levites, and Israelites. 
This was the well from which they watered the flocks. He interprets that to mean from here they heard the Ten Commandments. A good-sized rock is what the text says, and Rabbi Yochanan interprets this to mean the Shekhinah. And finally, when the text says, when all the flocks were gathered there, Rabbi Shimon ben Judah of Kafar Akko said in the name of Rav Shimon, Israel had been short by one only, they would not have been worthy of receiving the Torah. They would roll the stone off the well's mouth. From there, they heard the Ten Commandments. They would put the stone back. Thus it is written, you yourself saw that God spoke to you from the very heavens. This well with its heavy stone on top then becomes a geological signifier for communal revelation. Water, which often represents Torah in the form of the Ten Commandments, is released into the world when the entire community assembles. Its source, a well in the field, is really a stand-in, according to the ancient rabbis, for Sinai, and flocks remind us of the overall structure of the people, Israel, priests, Levites, and Israelites. Now, this is one of only six lengthy possibilities offered in the Midrash about this second stone. And the third and final stone comes at the end of the parasha, when Jacob makes an agreement with Laban after serving him for six, for many years, marrying his daughter and leaving much of his wealth. And Genesis 31, 46 shows Jacob and Laban erecting a mound of stones that shall serve as a witness between them, a point of demarcation between their respective territories, somewhat similar to a ceasefire line. And the Midrash, as I've already explained, has something to say about this rock too. Rabbi Yochanan said it was large as the peak of Tiberias, Mount Tiberias. Such an impromptu peak is highly unlikely, naturally. But perhaps the Midrash speaks figuratively. Their agreement to cease hostilities was surely hugely meaningful. And though the rocks may have been minute, what they meant to this tangled family system was surely enormous. And sometimes the smallest pile of stones assume the greatest meaning in our lives. To understand their significance, one need only be lost in a wilderness, hoping to spot the next Karen or regain the trail. One need only see the small pile of stones that tells us the grave has been visited and our relatives remembered. Or one need only to look upon an archaeological site with stones that tell story of the thousands of people who lived before us. So our parasha Vayetze is marked by an unnamed place and by the natural uh, stones that Jacob has gathered. And from those two, we uh, divine the place of the divine in Jacob's life. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a podcast of this on iTunes or on the CHRI website, or you might wish to write us a note asking for further elucidation on this program or any program, and you can send that to JFF at uh, chri.ca Shalom and have a good day. Behold, for